Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast. Hello and welcome to the Fish Nerds, the show about fish, fishing, and eating fish. The show is always interesting, usually funny, and mostly true. I'm Clay Groves, Chief Executive Fish Nerd, Licensed Fishing Guide, and your best friend. Strange show for you today, because today's show is not about fish at all. So I figured, you know, you've got diverse interests, just like I do, and I get approached by companies once in a while who aren't fishing-related, but I find them interesting, and I can't always find ways to fit them in. So recently, I was able to set up an interview with Carl, Carlton, World, Carlton Ward Jr., a Nat Geo explorer who just wrote a brand new book uh, about panthers in Florida. We're going to talk to him this morning or this afternoon, whatever time you're listening. Uh, and fascinating guy, incredible photographers. So we're talking to him on today's podcast. Also, uh, Backpackers Pantry sent me some dehydrated meals to test out. I've had them forever and finally made time to do a test for you for those as well. No fish in them, but we're going to do it anyway. Uh, which I'm excited about. And Costa Sunglasses has been uh, really generous to me over the last couple of years, sending me glasses and let me test out their products. So I thought I would interview Costa Sunglasses as they approach their 40th, or they're approach, as they're in their 40th anniversary. So that's going to be today's show all together, nice and easy for you. And it's, yeah, all on dry land today. So no fish on the Fish Nerds podcast today. Why don't we jump right in with Carlton Ward Jr. Carlton Ward Jr. is a National Geographic explorer and photographer who in 2010 founded the Florida Wildlife Corridor Project for which he trekked more than 2,000 miles during two expeditions supported by the Nat Geo Society. In 2015, he launched the Path of the Panther Project, an impact campaign with the National Geographic and other partners that helped inspire the Florida Wildlife Corridor Act in 2021. Today, Ward continues to work toward the conservation of vital acres of land and water across his home state. He lives in Tampa, Florida, and I'm, I'm excited to have him on the show. Now, before I interviewed him, I didn't realize The Path of the Panther, which is the book we're reviewing, was also a movie on Nat Geo. Uh, you can go on Disney Plus right now and watch it. I watched it after the interview. If I had watched it before the interview, the interview would have been a very different interview, but it wasn't on my radar, so I missed that. Uh, but I encourage you to go check out the documentary on this, and the book is beautiful. If you want a nice coffee table book, go grab a copy of The Path of the Panther. So let's jump right into it with Carlton Ward, Jr. Okay, fish nerds, I'm super excited because I'm joined by Carlton Ward, Jr. Carlton, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Clay. Happy to be here. Yeah, congrats on the on the new book. This is not your first book, but it's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, it's crazy to actually have it in my hands after all these years. Right. You started this way back in, what, 2016, something like that? Yeah, the Path of the Panther Project mm -hmm. started in earnest in 2016. It's the extension of work I've been doing for a decade before that, trying to raise awareness for a wildlife corridor through Florida. So there's some pictures in the book that go back in 15 years. That's that's fantastic. Before we get into Panthers, which we're going to talk a lot about today, a lot of people who aren't from Florida, we have a lot of listeners all over the place, everyone kind of knows about Florida, but what is the Wildlife Corridor? That's something you've been working on. 
Yeah, good question. Lots of people know about saltwater fishing along mm-hmm. the coast and Florida's coastlines have been our main identity. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole swath of wild lands in interior Florida that have been hidden in plain sight for the past century. We have an incredible network of public lands. Florida is more than 25% public land. And that consists of national parks and state parks and national forests, national wildlife refuges, nearly 10 million acres. And they exist as kind of big green blobs or stepping stones of green throughout the peninsula of Florida and out through the panhandle. But there's a lot of agricultural land too. And there are cattle ranches and citrus groves and timber farms. And that provides a connected green space that still exists from the Everglades to Georgia and around to Alabama. But it's not gonna always be that way. The way Florida is developing, we've got a thousand people moving here every single day. It's putting tremendous pressure on green space. And if we're not careful, we're going to develop down to where all of these public lands are islands surrounded by development. Right. So right now, is there a, is there a corridor down Florida where animals can freely <clears throat> travel where they need to go? There is a connected habitat corridor throughout Florida. It's degraded in places. It has road crossings and other places. But there is a connected green space. It's just that it's not yet protected. So you're, so the you're, goal- you're trying to protect it. Yeah, the goal of the Florida Wildlife Corridor is to increase the protection of all those connecting places, the Mm -hmm. ranches and the farms where people want alternatives to selling out to development, provide conservation easements, provide resources to help keep that green space connected. That's that's amazing. It's an important job. And and you've chosen panthers as what you've been studying since 2016. Why did panthers become your focus? The panther is a great ambassador for wildlife Mm -hmm. corridors. For a few reasons. One, it's the widest ranging animal on the continent. Um, it's the Florida panther is a cousin to the mountain lion, to the cougar, to the big cats that live out west. It's the last remnant population of pumas surviving in the eastern United States. And that's one reason it's a good ambassador. Um, but it's also the size of their territories and the size of their home ranges. So an individual male Florida panther needs a home range of up to 200 square miles. So for like a geographic comparison, that's twice the size of the city of Orlando for a single panther. So the only way you're going to protect habitat to have enough panthers is to have adjacent lands working together as one large connected whole. Right. You got to make space for them. Now in New Hampshire, where I am, we have rumors of panthers or mountain lions up here. No one's seen one in years. There's trail cams all in the woods. And there's like blurry pictures and all this. Um, so they're, you know, they were hunted to extinction years ago. And that people are saying they're starting to come back and re- really, really slowly. In Florida, what happened to them to cause the initial problem where they almost, where they mm-hmm. almost were gone? Now they make a comeback. But what was the start of the problem? Yeah, great question. It's the same, it's the same thing that wiped them out in New Hampshire and everywhere else in the East. It's habitat loss and it's persecution by settlers and livestock owners and people who were afraid of panthers. Right. We had a bounty on them at one point. Yeah. Same in Florida. So it's just the Southern tip of Florida, the deep swamps of the Everglades were wild enough and remote enough and inhospitable enough that early settlers didn't want to live there. Mm -hmm. And so it gave enough space for the panthers to persevere. And they kind of made it through the bottleneck of the late 1960s and became 
a conservation species in the 1970s and went on the endangered species list and became the focus for a lot of land conservation. There were fewer than 20 panthers, according to the genetics back then, and they're up to about 200 today. Which is not very many, but it's comparatively, it's, you know, it's 10 times, but it's... Yeah, it's on its way back. But in order to be a genetically viable population, they estimate there needs to be more than 600 panthers. And that's going to require not just three times as many, but three times as much land to support them. Right. And the only way that's going to happen is for the panther to reclaim more historic territory in central Florida, north Florida, and beyond. And, you know, it's it's not impossible that either a male Florida panther born in the Everglades or a male puma born in the Dakotas has been seen in the mountains of New Hampshire. They cover tremendous distances. There's one killed on the road in Connecticut, not far out of New York City, that was born in the Dakotas a number of years back. Um, the problem and the limiting factor for the recovery is the movement of female panthers. Because the male panthers defend a territory to the death. They have huge home ranges. They have pressure and incentive to push out to new areas. Females expand a little more slowly. Their home range is a quarter of the size. And so it's just now for the first time in nearly 50 years that female panthers are starting to show up on the north side of a river near Fort Myers, Florida, expanding north just for the first time. So if we want to have pumas back in the east, we need to have female pumas you know, out of the Everglades and all the way up the Appalachians up into your backyard. Right. And and, and the way to encourage it is by making the space for them. You just have to create create open spaces. You have to create open space and you have to create open space in people's minds where we can coexist with these animals. Right. Because as they grow, they're going to, just like sharks, we're going to start getting more scared of things as the more time we see them. You know, we're not, we don't see a lot right now, but interaction does does produce fear. It can, but it can also, I think, interaction can also show that it's safe. I mean, think about sharks. Think about all the videos you see online of people swimming with sharks. I mean, it's not it's not Jaws out there. No, it's true. And, and <clears throat> people have encounters with pumas, turkey hunters. Um, I heard a story of a friend who was turkey hunting and one like literally jumped over his head and attacked his decoy not that long ago. And they're not coming after people for the most part. So it's it's a matter of recognizing that we can coexist and recognizing the benefits. I mean, having a top level predator back in parts of the East would bring down the deer population. It would bring down the coyote population and reduce collisions on roads with hoofstock. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of positive positives to having these animals come back where we can make space for them. Yeah. And not to mention just wanting them back just for the sake of having them back. I mean, we don't always need to, have this perfect relationship. Sometimes we can just like, we need the animal because they belong. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. They've been here for tens of thousands of years and they deserve a chance to be there again. But it, but it also happens to be a benefit to us. And in a place like Florida, if you're a cattle rancher, it's just a matter of time until your land is too expensive to keep ranching because of development pressure. If you want resources and funding to set your land aside for conservation, the panther is actually your friend because it's going to motivate the public and the lawmakers to spend money to preserve that land. So in, an, in kind of a twist of balances, the panther has a way of helping save ranching in the state of Florida. Some of these ranchers can get paid not to ranch, <laughs> get paid to, well, you know, to protect well, the, their land get, instead. 
Well, they get paid not to build houses. That's right. the thing. I mean, ranching is compatible in Florida. We've got, you know, the cattle ranches are great wildlife habitat. Well, maybe it's I don't understand that... ranching so much. I'm thinking, probably thinking more farming. I think ranching, can you describe what ranching means exactly? Because I get a little bit twisted in my brain. <clears throat> yeah, like in Florida, we have grazing lands mm-hmm. and it's often forest covered in parts of it. I mean, a cattle ranch, I was filming one this morning that's about to be protected by the state of Florida as part of the Florida Wildlife Corridor. It's vast pine forest, it's cypress interspersed by open pastures and prairies where cattle graze. But the amount of wildlife, deer, bear, panthers, bobcats that live on these ranches is on par with any of the best public lands that are nearby. So they're just by having open space available. And so ranchers are running their their cattle through areas, but they're it's like old cowboy stuff. They're they're moving them around and there's, there's yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, are, are even on the highest stocking densities in Florida, you might have one cow on five acres. And and so it's it's kind of open range. It's places where we had buffalo ranging in the 17 and early 1800s in some spots. So it's it fits here. Um, well, that's perfect. I want to I want to talk about your photography, though, for a bit, because this uh, what, what carries this book is the photos and you're a photographer and. You know, you've, you've photographed all over the world, but the panther photography you've done in this book, just in New Hampshire, where we are, like I, t- I told you earlier, it's so hard for people to even capture them, even with camera traps. You've got amazing panther pictures. Can you tell me about the first time you captured a photo of a panther? Do you remember that? Yeah. The, well, the, the first time I got a picture of a panther on a camera trap was on a cattle ranch in the northern Everglades way back in 2008 or 2009, I had cameras out for black bears. I was doing a story on Florida black bears that were also living on cattle ranches. And it was amazing. Got this male panther cruising by. It wasn't a great picture, but it was just beautiful and awe-inspiring to see a panther there in silhouette in front of the palmettos and just know it was out there. Mm-hmm. When I started working on the Path of the Panther Project with the intention of doing a story for National Geographic Magazine, it kind of raised the bar on the type of imagery I needed to produce. Mm-hmm. It couldn't just be a picture of a panther. You right. had to f- feel that panther. It had to be as beautiful and as awe-inspiring as the snow leopard from the Himalaya or the leopard um, traveling through Africa or a jaguar in the rainforest of Bolivia. Like We'd seen all these other exotic cats, but you have to capture the feeling of the animal. And to do that, you have to have intimacy in the picture and you have to see the eyes and you have to see the habitat in the context of where the animal lives. Not to mention that in all my life in the Florida woods, I've only ever seen two panthers in the wild with my own eyes. Right. It's extremely hard to see them. They're rare. Even 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 where they're doing quite well, they might come by my camera trap site once a month and they might come by once every two months facing in the direction of the camera. Right. You get that blurry butt, butt shot or tail flopping by and yeah. And they might the come by and they're mostly nocturnal. So you've got to light them with flashes and, but even so the best shots have a little bit of daylight. So you might get them once a year. If you're lucky coming through with some daylight facing the camera, and then you have to get your camera to work. And the cameras I'm using aren't the off the shelf game camera. You get at the outdoor store it's a professional 
mirrorless or DSLR camera in a waterproof box firing strobes or flashes like you'd use in a studio. Mm-hmm. It's just out there on a trail in the woods with an infrared tripwire. So the animal comes through, breaks the beam, takes a picture. That's amazing. So were most of the photos in the book done with, with that kind of, are the Panthers done with, with that kind of camera? Or did you get out in the field and hide in the woods or now swamps? And- <laughs> almost every Panther picture when there's a Panther in the wild is with a camera trap with the exception of one portrait, the one time I've ever photographed a panther in the wild with a camera in my hands, I was driving into the back country at Audubon's Corkscrew Swamp down near Naples, going to service a camera trap, and I saw a panther coming down the road in front of me. I pulled off onto the side of the road, you know, freaked out for a little bit, and then it, the thing walked and sat down outside my window and looked at me for a minute, no. like 20, <laughs> 20, 25, 20 yards away. So I took a bunch of pictures and there's actually a scene in the film. I I know you know about the Path of the Panther book, but there's a new film called Path of the Panther that's streaming on Disney Plus and Hulu as of last week. And it kind of, there's a scene where I'm freaking out trying to get that picture as I see that panther. Oh, that's exciting. That's so cool. It must have been like, been, been like one of those like pinnacle moments too, where you're like, oh God, oh God, where's my camera? Is, is, is there is yeah, it, no, is it, battery it, it, good? Is that, you know, you just kind of run down the list and. Well, and I was, I was, like of all things, I was on a conference call with the director of the Panther film while driving back to do this. I tell him I'm seeing a Panther and he's like, take horizontal video of yourself. <laughs> I'm like, which I never would have done right. had he not like made me do it. So I'm sitting there with my iPhone trying to take like some <laughs> selfie video as the Panther sits in the road. Then it, then it starts walking close and I freak out and throw the phone down and get my real camera. And then it walks again. So I do that a couple of times, but mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad he did, so we can share the moment with the world now. Well, that, that's exciting, and I didn't realize you had the film out on on Disney Plus. My kids will be and I will be excited to watch that this weekend. I just we're looking for something to watch. So awesome! We're yeah, it's a, it's a National Geographic film under that tile on Disney Plus. I'll take a look at that. Now it was funny when I was a kid growing up. I spent all my time uh, in trouble, and when I got in trouble, my parents would ground me, and all I was able to watch was nature documentaries. So I would. So when I look at your pictures and I look at what you're doing. I dreamed of doing stuff like what you're doing as a kid, you know, watching, um, I want to say, I can't remember the shows anymore, but like, but all the, the, all these nature programs on TV all the time as a kid, back in the eighties, I don't know how old you are, but. Yeah. Probably, <clears throat> probably National Geographic Explorer or yeah. Mutual, Mutual of Omaha. Oh, that Mutual Kingdom. Omaha is what I watched the most. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Jim Wild Fowler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So now you're up there with those guys. So you feel, how's it feel? It's awesome. I mean, it's it's amazing to be able to have a platform to share the Florida I love and want to save. You know, right. there, there's it, this the Panther and the Panther story has given it's given us this way to share this message. Right. People are interested. I've been I've been advocating and speaking out for the wildlife corridor since I helped found the project in 2010. But now that we have the Florida Panther, this amazing, inspiring animal that sports teams are named after and people have on their license plates, like it's it, it has a whole nother draw and it's helped elevate the story. Right. It's you know, really cool. When I used to work, yeah, I used, to, I used to be an Audubon naturalist and I worked with fish with Audubon and we we, we used salmon as our draw. There was the, the cuddly, we called it the Bambi factor. It was the cuddly animal that protects all the rest. So salmon would bring people in, but we then we'd go from there to talk about all the other animals that we conserve by making space for the salmon. I think the panther is probably the same kind of thing where 
by making space for panther, you're also making space for other other animals. Yeah, that's a perfect comparison. That that salmon migrates in from the saltwater to the freshwater and weaves together entire estuary and freshwater marine habitats. It's an umbrella species. Same mm-hmm. with the Florida panther. It it needs so much land. If you protect the land you need for one panther, you're saving dozens of black bears and thousands of other species. Yeah. Now, um, with I, yeah, I know about fish. I don't know much about mammals. Uh, but with fish, one of the big our big concerns is invasive invasive species, right? Florida, full of invasive fishes. And also, I know in Everglades, you've got all kinds of other invasive animals, like uh, I think what, you have uh, pythons and stuff like that. Do invasive animals impact impact the panthers? Well, the invasive animals are a big issue that definitely impact the ecosystem. As far as direct effects on the Florida panther, it's it's a little bit secondary. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the Burmese pythons, for example, are annihilating small mammal populations. Right. Florida panthers do eat small mammals, so I think it probably reduces the available prey in parts of the territory. Fortunately, panthers, as much as they've been associated with the swamp and survived in the swamp, they're not really swamp cats. They're living and surviving in the last place we gave them to survive. Oh, they got. But they, they prefer they prefer to be in the nice dry uplands of central Florida where we don't have the conflict with the pythons. There's been, I guess, one endangered species silver lining because we have feral hogs that came from the Spanish in the 1600s and panthers really like to eat feral hogs. Everyone does. (laughs) Yeah. And so um, it's actually been a point of conflict with some hunters because panthers are so good at eating hogs that there's not as many hogs to hunt. Isn't that funny how how the hunters are hunting invasive species and then the panthers are hunting the same invasives and they're fighting for that same thing, but... I mean, the goal really should be to get rid of those hogs anyway. So you think- Yeah, whereas the, the cattle ranchers who might fear the panther taking some calves can also look at the benefit of how much money they're spending trapping and dealing with invasive hogs. The panther can help them out. They, and they also eat coyotes, which is interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. Because I know a lot of states still have coyote bounties and they're still trying to get rid of them. Although I did read a study that said that by if you limit the population of coyotes, they increase their population. They... they uh, produce more 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 pups if the population drops so you actually end up with more but I don't know. yeah i mean it's hard to hunt them out of you know the more you shoot them the faster they breed the yeah. more pups they produce but i will say that in places where i have camera traps where there are plenty of panthers you don't see hogs you don't see coyotes well they clear out <laughs> they don't want to get eaten and either anyway that's, that's really cool i mean the book is is beautiful uh, my takeaway from the book too is it seems like the biggest problem getting these guys back is roadkill. It's highways, it's cars. That's taking out a lot of these guys out. I'd say it's definitely a big impact. It would be second to habitat loss. Second to habitat. Yeah, yeah I mean, we you've got to have large connected habitat. You have to have coexistence where people aren't wanting to shoot them and hide them. And and then you have to have safe passage across roadways. But that comes a little bit later. We We need to... We need to put in wildlife underpasses and overpasses because they protect panthers and all kind of wildlife, not to mention motorists on the roads. But that's a technical solution, mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter unless you have protected green space connected on both sides of the road in the first place. Right, place for them that, to live first. 
Yes. And that's what the Florida Wildlife Corridor is all about. It's just elevating that idea that we need that connected green space. We need it for panthers. We need it for other wildlife. We need it for ourselves. It's sure. where most of our water and food comes from, too. So it's just kind of a wake up call to protect a balance in Florida and across the planet. Right. So um, what, what what can people do to help? How can we get involved? <clears throat> Go to pathofthepanther.com. We have links to where you can watch the film. You can see the book. There's an educational screening guide for teachers and for students to watch the film with and help spread the word. I mean, this is this is a universal story of how we need to save connected green space across the planet. And Florida is a great laboratory for it because we have so many competing forces of development and pressure from the coastlines. And at the same time, this resilient wildlife in the Florida panther that is making a miraculous comeback if we can help it do it. That's perfect. Again, the book is is beautiful. It's The Path of the Panther, New Hope for Wild Florida. The pictures are stunning. Uh, the stories in there are, are heart-touching and make you really want to get involved with it. Um, I just, But the pictures, I just can't – I just keep staring at them. I start reading, and then I get distracted by the photography in this book. I just It's not just panther pictures, too. It's the bear pictures, all that stuff. I just love them all. We've got bears here in New Hampshire, as you know. And uh, – and that just like the Panthers, they don't, they don't bother people too much. And you know, they take, they chase my chickens around a little bit and that's about the, <laughs> the worst we're dealing with with bears up here. But man, I, I'm dying to see a Panther on my trail cam. I'm so far just squirrels. That's it. <laughs> well, next come down to Florida, catch some bass, catch mm -hmm. a tarpon, and then take some Panthers back to New Hampshire with you. Yeah. Help, help seed the population a little bit. Now, is there, is there any breeding programs for Panthers or is it just like <clears throat> make space, let them grow? Well, there's not a there's not a there's not a breeding problem per se. There's a space problem, and I think one of the things that would be a big help to the panther, and this is up to the wildlife agencies and it's up to the local communities, but helping reintroduce panthers to places where they used to be, mm -hmm. it would give them a huge leg up in Florida if we were able to move some female panthers further north in the peninsula, maybe a place like Ocala National Forest, maybe the Okefenokee Swamp in southern Georgia. We know they'll do fine there and the males will find them. It's just a matter of getting that coexistence and that willingness of people to start living with a predator again. Right. Is there enough panthers to spread around if you start moving them or would you import them from like other states? You could do it a number of ways. I mean, the genetics are, it's, it's almost a matter of semantics. Mm -hmm. I mean, 300 years ago, it was all one contiguous population of pumas across the continent. And so- they're very close cousins to the pumas in Texas, um, mountain lions out west. It's just the Florida panther is a puma in Florida. Right. Just happened to be where, where it's at, separated, geographically separated. Exactly. But yeah, I think we, you, could, you can move them from Florida. You can move them from other places. And um, you know, the ones you're seeing on trail cameras and you know legends of panthers in your backyard – they're probably coming from the Dakotas. You know, they're showing up in Tennessee. They're showing up more in Ohio and Iowa. So you're getting panthers moving through, but there's not, or pumas moving through, but you're not having that resident breeding population. So it's a matter of getting females back into those places to help the animal reestablish. Right. That's what it takes. Got to get the, gotta get the lady pumas out. <laughs> exactly. Help attract them. Well, uh, Carlton, thank you so much. Is there any other takeaways you want people to have from this conversation? 
No, I think it's, I mean, I think, I do think it's, I think it's a remarkable story of hope. What has been, what we've been able to help accomplish here in Florida, because the, the motivation behind the Panther story has always been protecting the Florida wildlife corridor and the path of the Panther project, working with the national geographic society and other partners like the Florida wildlife corridor foundation and the live wildly foundation and the nature conservancy conservation, Florida, et cetera. We, um, introduced legislation in 2021 called the Florida Wildlife Corridor Act. And we got unanimous bipartisan support That's from rare. Florida's lawmakers. It was incredible. And lawmakers from both sides of the aisle identified with the solution and the practicality and the foresight of the wildlife corridor and have really taken up leadership and put a lot of their own leadership on protecting it. And in, in the three legislative sessions, including 2021, there have been just over $2 billion allocated to land protection and conservation easements within the Florida Wildlife Corridor. That's and so amazing. people are people are really caring about this. And it's showing that, for one, storytelling can make a difference in mm -hmm. helping inspire and motivate change. And it shows that there are issues in this country that we can all agree on. And I think wildlife corridors are one of them. And they can be a solution that can really help reconnect America. Well, that's amazing. Uh, Carlton, thank you so much for uh, sharing this story with us. Thanks for making this beautiful book. I'm looking forward to watching the film on National Geographic or Disney Plus this weekend with my kids. Um, this book would make a great Father's Day gift. It's, an, it's a coffee table size book. It's going to sit there and everyone's going to sit down and page through it and just be amazed by the photography. Carlton, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming up on land to talk about panthers with me. But it was a good bridge species because I was standing in the water most of the time I was working on this project in the Everglades anyway. Good, and the fish were biting you and your le leeches were getting you and all the fun. Yeah, exactly. It's all connected. Perfect. Thanks, Carlton. We appreciate your time coming out of the field. Uh, and it's funny, before this interview, he's, he was getting on, but he was coming off the field doing some work stuffing a donut and coffee into his face because he really wanted to get fed before he talked to me because he's working so hard. That guy is insane worker. So really cool stuff happening with Carlton Ward Jr. Pick up his book on Amazon or anywhere you get your books. So Backpacker's Pantry sent me some dehydrated foods to eat. They make all kinds of stuff, and they really want people to know about them, so they asked me to do a little test for them. Here's a little synopsis. As there are so many uses for backpackers' pantry meals, whether it be for their breakfast and desserts like creme brulee, entrees like pad thai, three cheese mac, green curry, for example, backpackers' pantry also has meals for every diet, whether it be gluten-free or vegetarian, and they've got all kinds of ways to use them. Obviously, you know how to use, you know why you might want a dehydrated meal. They just travel so well. You can pack them in your boat and always have a nice hot meal when you're ready. So a lot of fun, and we thank Backpackers' Pantry for sending those in. And you can buy these foods right on their website, or you can get them on Amazon. I think I think Walmart has them, so a lot of fun. They do want you to know that uh, American Outdoor Products, producers of Backpackers Pantry, are bringing back astronaut ice cream. So that's exciting. It's uh, delicious freeze-dried sandwiches and fruit, and it's on a brand-new website. I'll put links up in our show notes, so make sure you check all that out. And we thank Backpackers Pantry for sending us some free food. I'm a big fan of free food. Okay, friends, we're doing it. Backpackers Pantry sent us, we've got three cheese, mac and cheese, as elbow pasta, cheddar cheese, Romano cheese, and Parmesan cheese. And we have pad thai 
with chicken. It has rice noodles, white meat chicken, veggies, and peanuts. Making them is super easy. You just add boiling water, mix it up, let it sit for eight minutes, stir it, and then repeat without more water. Just keep adding, just stir it again. So it's a total of like 15 minutes of sitting time. We've done it. Taste testers are my kids, Zoe. Say hi, Zoe. Hi, Zoe. And Blue Jay. Hi, I'm Blue Jay. This is how I talk. That's how you know it's Blue Jay. That's yep. how they talk. And we're going to taste them. The first one we're going to taste, I'm going to have Blue Jay go first. Blue Jay's going to taste. And Blue Jay's, Blue Jay's not a chicken fan, so we have to bear that in mind. But for science, Blue Jay, give a taste of that pad thai with chicken from Backpacker's Pantry. I'm going to try and get a bite without any chicken. Okay, like that one's it. not for Blue Jay. How about Zoe? Give it a taste. Peanut buttery. I'm not sure on that one. <laughs> I, think I, I think I got a big mouthful of peanut butter on that There's one. There's no peanut butter in that. There's a pile hey. of spices. Yeah. It's not bad. It's not bad. I think I could have mixed it more. Yeah. Yeah. I got a huge pile of spice mm-hmm. on that last mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. And for the mac and cheese, Zoe's going to go first on the mac and cheese. Oh, I thought you were going first. Mine. All right. Here we go. Now that is a delight. Good? Yep. It right. tastes like Kraft mac and cheese, but with more cheese. Blue Jay is a big fan of mac and cheese. I love mac and cheese. Mac and cheese expert. Oh, that's so good. So good? That is really good. So a win for the mac and cheese for you, Blue Jay, but not the pad thai. Not the pad thai. Just not your style. Yeah, I don't, I'm not a big fan of pad thai in general. Zoe, of the two, what do you prefer? Mac and cheese. All right, I'm going to taste mac and cheese now myself. I prefer the pad thai, but that's good mac and cheese. So, you can have it. So, these 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 backpackers pantries meals are available. I think at Walmart and Amazon, wherever wherever your dehydrated foods are found. And we thank Backpackers Pantry for sending them along. We'll put links up in the show notes. But I think in a pinch, all you is had hot water. If you were out hiking or something, pretty good. What do you think, Blue Jay? I think these are a great idea. Oh, yeah. For hiking, this is awesome. Maybe ice fishing, boil some water up, toss them in. You're good to go. That would be really fun. All right. That's our review of Backpacker's Pantry, three cheese mac and cheese and pad thai with chicken. And finally, we are going to be talking to John Acosta from Costa Sunglasses. No relation. Uh, They're approaching their 40th anniversary, and uh, they've been sending me sunglasses for a few years now to test out, and I, I like them a lot, and I'm a, again, I'm a fan of free stuff, too, so I appreciate them. So we're going to jump into Costa Sunglasses conversation here with John, and again, big thanks to Costa Sunglasses for sending us a few pairs to test out. And we're joined by John Acosta, VP of Marketing from Costa Sunglasses, no relation. John, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Yes, no relation, but I believe I'm destined to work on this brand. I, I, I first saw your name and I thought, that's it. I'm talking to the owner. How's that happen? That's crazy. So I got to tell you, before well, we get he, into he into your brand, into Costa, uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, sunglasses, my experience with sunglasses, and then we'll we'll talk about your sunglasses. Uh, because my experience with sunglasses, uh, I've, I've always fished with polarized sunglasses, but I've never been one to spend money on polarized sunglasses. And so I've always had the cheap, you know, ten to thirty dollar range sunglasses, and I've done, done pretty good, like enjoying those polarization. And then you guys, Costa, sent me my first pair of sunglasses from your company, and it was like a different planet. It was like nothing I've ever seen before. Uh, and I measured how far into my lake I can see. We went out with a local conservation department, 
and we measured lake clarity using a Secchi disc, which is a black and white disc you drop to the bottom of the lake. And without the sunglasses on, we could see to 18 feet, which is a pretty clear lake. But with them on, I got another six feet of clarity. I could see that much more depth than anybody else. So we actually have data to back up your polarization. No, I love hearing those stories like that. I will tell you, you know, we, we hear a lot of those stories. And I really think that once you get the frames on your face and you really get to experience um, the 580 lens technology that we have, especially with glass lenses and everything else, it really, really does make a difference, you know, more so than just being sunglasses, you know, for anglers and the hardcore anglers, whatever, whatever you do, if it's inshore, offshore salt, freshwater bass fishing, fly fishing, whatever, it's, it's really essential equipment. You know, our, our average customer, you know, is a hardcore angler that, that owns just under six pairs, 5.7, you know, pairs of frames of, um, coats of sunglasses just because they want the different lenses for the different applications because it is essential equipment to to being successful on the water. Yep, I keep three different pairs on my boat too. So, and I don't let my clients use them. I'm a fishing guide and I'm like, yeah, you can have the cheap ones. I'm going to keep the coast. <laughs> I'm afraid to lose them. Uh, but, but so let's get into it. You got, your company just turned 40 years old. You've not, you're not old enough to have been with the company for that long. But tell me about it, like the kind of bring uh, me through the history. A little bit older. Yeah, a little bit older. Yeah. No, it, it, 2023 is a huge milestone year for us. We're really excited. 40th anniversary. 40th anniversary. Started back in 1983. You know, honestly, it was, a, it was a group of hardcore fishermen who spent their days just, you know, wanting to explore and create new adventures and, and figuring out how to battle elements, you know, and realize that basically like what you said, you know, there wasn't really a performance sunglass, you know, back in the day to really, really help them, you know, go farther and do more and see more. And so they decided to build their own and that's how Costa was born, you know? So I think it's, it's great. You know, it was originally um, started up in Ormond beach and then it's it had its um, home for a very long time um, in Daytona beach. And now we are here in Jupiter, Florida, we brought Costa back to uh, Florida, where its roots are. It's a Florida-based brand, but you know, 40 years later, you know, Costa still committed to our two basic core values. We want to build the best sunglasses on the planet for those who live to be on the water, and we also want to protect our watery world that we call home. So, conservation sustainability has been in our DNA since the very beginning. Right. You have a pair of uh, frames that are made out of recycled fishing nets. Is that right? We do. Yeah. The Untangled line is yep. a line that I'm, I'm I'm extremely proud of and what the brand has been able to create. I think it really comes just about full circle to be really weave that ethos into products. So the Untangled line that you talked about is made out of a 95 plus percent um, recycled fishing nets. And so it's a really, really cool story. It really brings back to, you know, who what we stand for in terms of conservation sustainability, like I said. But beyond that, it's, you know, we've got some really great frame styles, both on the casual and the performance side for both men and women um, in that line. And the, and I will definitely tell you that, you know, the Untangled line as a capsule collection that we have right now um, is going to be a big part of our future moving forward. You're going to start to see that technology uh, woven into many more popular frames that we have. That's really good. Now, when I got my pair of the Untangled line, uh, my teenage daughter stole them from me. I wore them for half a day and then she took them and they're gone. She has them forever. Yep. She, she, she saw style. She yeah. saw style when she saw it. Well, it. she also really liked the conservation story behind it. When I told her that, she's like, okay, they're mine. And that was, <laughs> that was it. Game over. I'm like, dang, I need a new pair of glasses now. <laughs> so, and I just got Love in that. the mail this well, last week a pair of uh, mainsails. 
in the mail. And these are very kind of like classic oh. looking sunglasses. I really, so far they're my yeah, favorite the frames. Main, the main sale is a really, really cool frame. It's actually a frame I've been wearing a lot lately. Um, it's, it's part of our, um, a new category that we have called hybrid. So it's basically a frame that has, um, performance features, but really doesn't sacrifice on the style that you'd expect from just a, like a beach lifestyle glass. So um, the proportions of it and and just the overall styling is one that you can wear on and off the water, right? And not feel uncomfortable. So right. They remind um, me of the, really old, like, uh, have... like, oh, the old uh, 80s Ray-Ban type uh, styles, like that kind of classic. Yeah classic shape to yeah. them, which is my style. So I really it, dig them. Yeah. And then it's, and then it's got, you know, it's got some really great performance features like the adjustable nose piece, the, um, the rubber, uh, the rubber arms, you know, to non-slip and the, um, I, the retainers for, um, for your, uh, for the, uh, retainer cord. I mean, it's just, it's a very, very cool frame, but in a way that doesn't scream like fishing performance, high wrap or anything else, but really can fit, you know, your active water lifestyle. Yeah, they're pretty great. So 40 years, Costa's been around. How long have you been with Costa? So I've been with Costa just for about a year and a half now. Um, and so really excited uh, to be here and to lead marketing here in North America. Um, came here with the intent to help um, reestablish um Costa in Florida. And that's why um, we're here in Jupiter, Florida, which is the perfect location for us. Um, we're right off the inlet, very close to Sailfish Alley. If we want to go offshore and then 30 minutes to Okeechobee for some world-class bass fishing, it, it really is an ideal location for us. So I'm just uh, really, really thrilled and excited to be here and, and to help, you know, write the next chapter for Costa. And do you fish? I do fish. You yes, do. Well, tell I me, do fish. Tell me your uh, go-to. Like if you would just, you got an hour and a half, you don't have a long time. You're running out. And doing if that. I, if I had any type of, um, if I had any type of fishing to do, I'd want to do inshore salt fishing um, in the Keys or even up around here. There's lots of great places to go after snook, but um, I'm just, uh, I really, really enjoy inshore. I've also spent a lot of time, I'm originally from the Midwest. And so I spent a lot of time uh, bass fishing as well. I worked at Bass Pro Shops in marketing for 12 years. And so I've been, around the outdoor industry for a long time. So um, I love all types of fishing and I'm, I'm fortunate enough to get to, 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 to get to do it from time to time. But if I had my choice, um, inshore salts where I'm going. That's, that's kind of my favorite too. I love, I love, I, well, let me tell you how frustrating I got with, with Costa glasses this winter. I was down in Florida in December in Tampa and we were yeah. sitting in a little, little uh, bay there docking with a boat to a dock and couldn't see any fish. I put on my Costas and you could see all the fish. But, but it was uh, you were you were in Florida this winter. It was super cold in December. It was like being in New Hampshire. It was unbelievable. So I can see this huge snook sitting by the docks, catching the sun. And here's why Costa was frustrating because without him on, I wouldn't have seen him. And but because I can see him and they wouldn't eat, I got mad at the sunglasses. I was like, "Come on, <laughs> I see you right there, stupid glasses, showing me fish I can't catch." <laughs> oh man, they work too good. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, I'll how, just have to apologize. How dare you? How dare you? Now, is your from Midwest? Where specifically? So originally uh, born and raised in the Chicago area, and then the first ten years of my career, I worked in ad agencies mm -hmm. uh, in. Chicago, Los Angeles, Newport Beach, mm -hmm. Springfield, Missouri, Boston, back to Springfield. And then I was at Bass Pro Shops for 12 years mm -hmm. based in Springfield, Missouri um, in, in marketing there. Mm -hmm. After that, I left um, and I was at Major League Fishing for three years, uh, launching the Bass Pro Tour. And then after that, I came here to Costa. Cool. So when you were up in the north, up in the Chicago area, yep. did you ever do any ice fishing? 
I have not. You know, it's funny that, enough. That's half I, of my I, world right not, there. <laughs> is that is that what that is? Okay, so yeah. I'm sure we could you know, that there's a lot of shop that we talked about that, especially since you're a northern guy. Yeah. Uh, probably ice fishing and probably also getting after a smallmouth when when you can, huh? Oh, we love we love it all. Yeah, I mean, where I live in the White Mountains, it's it's bass fishing and trout fishing are the two primaries. Yeah. And ice fishing is my favorite. And I we wear these glasses, coasters all went along. The glare on the lake is if you've not been out on frozen lakes with sun, a sunny day, that glare will blind you. And having a good pair of glasses makes a big difference. So the coasters have saved my eyes many a time, which is I appreciate. Uh, but ice fishing is my favorite. But inshore, salt's great. Um, so Costa Sunglasses, you guys been around a long time. The website is costadelmar.com. Just Google Coast of Sunglasses comes right up. You guys have any big special things happening for your 40th? Yeah, you know, we've had a lot of things going on um, with that. Uh, you know, we started with a campaign um, celebrating our 40th anniversary um, earlier this year. Um, and, it went, you know, there's just uh, a lot of activities and promotions, events celebrating 40th anniversary. And it's coming to life in a lot of different ways. We just had a, a new brand campaign that's launched, Waters Are Witness, that's part of that overall 40th anniversary celebration. Um, and that'll carry us into ICAST here uh, in, in July, um, the, the, the biggest industry trade show. We'll have some really big things going on. Then we have some really, really exciting uh, new product launches that are coming up. One of the, one of the, um, one of the launches I can't speak to as of yet, but um, it's really the most important uh, piece that Costa has ever created. It's going to be the pinnacle of fishing performance technology and unlike anything you've ever seen. So we're really, really excited that all of that lined up perfectly to happen during our 40th anniversary year. And it's going to be a culmination of 40 years of innovation and technology. So it's a big year for us and we're, we're excited. We have a lot of things going on to celebrate that um, throughout now until the end of the year. So um, it's just a, it's just a great time for celebration and, and really to reflect back and look, look at how Costa has impacted the industry over the past 40 years. That's perfect. Uh, one more thing I like about Costa. I'm going to, I'm going to drop that before I go is I can use my iPhone with your polarized glasses and with the cheap ones, I can't see the screen. So there's something different yep. about your lenses. I don't know what it is. What is it? Why is it? I, you know, I, I can't really answer that aspect of why that is. Um, but the polarization, I think that, you know, uh, the, our 580, our 580 lens technology and how we handle light transmission and everything else is really unparalleled. And so um, it's an, it's a nice, side benefit of all the other things, but you know, our goal with our lenses and our frames is to make sure that you can see as clearly as possible and um, be with you for every adventure. So I love hearing your stories about how deep down you can see in the clear water and the extra, extra link that it gives you. And um, I think, you know, we just try to be there wherever we can to be a part of those uh, adventures and making memories. That's perfect. John, any parting thoughts, last thoughts? Um, no, I just want to say thanks again for um, the time. You know, we like I said, we have a lot of great things happening this year between the 40th anniversary. Um, we have a lot of different conservation initiatives. Our Protect Report, um, which really shows the impact of what Costa does from a um, from a cause uh, and sustainability and conservation standpoint, um, will be coming out later this year. So we're really really excited about that. Well, maybe then, like um, I said, maybe you know, I can get you back on or someone back on and talk specifically specifically about that later when it comes out when the report comes out because I really love that conservation stuff. Yeah. So. No, I think it would be great. We'd love to have um, our cause marketing team be a part of that and really speak to that. There's so many. Um, initiatives that we have going beyond just selling sunglasses and and for uh, you know for our consumers and for Costa as a brand you know 
it's really enabling those passions and and really encouraging people to see what's out there. So we really believe in this this concept of the blue mind and what water does as far as its transformational aspects to affect your life. And so however you do that, we want to encourage that. We've got lots of great products coming out. Um, I had a bunch of them come out early this year. And then the second half's got just very, very exciting releases. So we have a lot of energy and momentum um, as we go into the back half of this year. But we're just excited to celebrate 40 years. And, and I just tell you that the uh, future is super bright and we're excited um, to continue to build and write the next chapter of Costa here in Jupiter, Florida. I thought you were going to say the future is so bright, you got to wear shades. You missed it. I was going to stop that short. <laughs> All right, John Acosta from Costa, no relation, VP of marketing. Thank you so much for making time for us. And thank you for the sunglasses. You guys have sent me a few pairs over the last few years, and I adore them, and I appreciate um, your generosity. So that's it. You've listened to a bunch of fish nerds when you should have been fishing. Big thanks to everyone involved in the show today. Kind of a wild, no fishy show. And until next time, follow the code of the fish nerds, spawn early and often, never trust a free lunch with strings attached, and swim against the current every chance you get.